0: whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Essie Avalon MW is a journalist who probably knows more about sparkling wines than anyone else on the planet. I caught up with her from her base in Helsinki to talk about single vineyard champagnes, autolysis, cork age, how to taste bubbles, the best fizz regions outside France, her preference for fresher, over-oxidative styles, the impact of climate change and the future of grape growing in Finland. Hello, Essie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tim. Where are you? Tell me. Are you in Champagne?
1: No, no. I just came back from Champagne about a week ago. Um, I was w- following the quite complicated harvest for a week.
0: And now you're, but you're, now you're back in Helsinki.
1: Exactly. But I'm going back to Champagne tomorrow morning, actually. So.
0: I mean, how much time do you spend there?
1: As much as I can, really, um, I'd say I usually go uh, eight to ten times a year. But uh, sometimes I can spend shorter, sometimes longer periods. So I've yeah. never actually counted the days.
0: But you never want to move there.
1: Uh, yeah. Why not? You know, uh, I feel like I have uh, four homes. That one of them is London, where I, I come also maybe 10 times a year. So I spent mm. my summers in the south of France and then Champagne and Helsinki. I like mm. it this way.
0: Mm. And you were born and brought up in Finland, weren't you?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right, uh, in the south of Finland.
0: And was wine part of your life growing up? Were your parents wine drinkers?
1: Uh, yes, wine drinkers, but it wasn't really a hobby of theirs at all. Um, uh, my, uh, But it actually my father, there's a coincidence why I ended up in the wine industry. It's, it was because of my father. So he used to work um in the clothing industry and worked for the for the grand old man of wine in Finland. So uh, Juha Barilund, he uh, he founded a winery in Bordeaux and I started there as a as a seller rat in nineteen ninety
0: seven. In Bordeaux, wow.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Premier got to Bordeaux. The winery is called Chateau Carsan.
0: Ah, so that was the way in. I just wonder are there any vineyards in Finland? I mean I know there are in Sweden and in Norway. Anything with, with climate change happening?
1: Uh, yes, uh, there are actually a lot of vineyards, but we don't have a commercial wineries yet. Actually, this week, earlier this week, uh, we, we got some news of a very brave entrepreneur from uh, Nau, which is one of those islands uh, on, the, on the south coast of Finland, that, uh, that he's starting commercial production in, in greenhouses. So we shall see.
0: And what's he growing?
1: I think it was some sort of a Riesling uh, type, which is quite uh, surprising because obviously most of, in most cases people start with some kind of hybrids or or, or the likes of that. But um, oh. we'll see. But Finland is still quite a lot f- further north from uh, Sweden, uh, the south of uh, Sweden and Norway. So there's mm. still a, a way way to go for us. And
0: climate change is going to get a lot warmer before they're beginning to grow red grapes in, in in Finland, right? Yeah. Did, did you study business administration didn't you, rather than wine or agriculture university? When did you switch? You said you made this. You went to Bordeaux um, as a seller rat. But when did you think, hey, this could be a career? here?
1: Yeah, it. it um, you know, uh, when you're young, you have to choose quite early on what you want to do. And um, and uh, I went to the business school because I didn't I didn't know what I wanted to become, and that sort of uh, felt like it it was going to keep all the, the doors open. Mm-hmm. And it was actually during that time that I I, um, I went. First First for the harvest for two weeks, and did this marketing paper for school, and then the next year I lived there for six months. Uh, the, basically, the whole growth cycle of the vine, did all the jobs in the vineyards, and, and then the harvest jobs in the cellar. And that's then I chose that you know when when um, uh, graduation was was coming closer, I decided that I wanted to seek a career in wine, which was something quite uh, unusual in Finland at the time.
0: Yeah, and when did you first become interested in in sparkling wines? Because you went to Bordeaux. Says. So it could have been Bordeaux, really. That was your specialty. Yeah, I
1: actually started with white Bordeaux, and it still is a big love of mine. Uh, I love the style because that winery in Premier Côte de Bordeaux was focused especially on whites. Mm. Um but yeah, it, it came early on. I noticed that my my palette was one for for lighter and fresher and more energetic uh wines and uh uh, but I really started to specialize in it in 2004, so almost 20 years ago, uh, which was during the Master of Wine studies, because I just realized how much there is to study and understand and follow, and I felt like I wanted to uh, do not like you did, that you you're, you are uh, you know looking into all the wines of the world, obviously with your specialities as well, but you know I wanted to find one speciality of which I one day would feel that I I know something
0: and know uh, more than anybody else, right? <laughs>
1: Exactly, that's the goal.
0: (laughs) And was there a moment when you had a bottle of sparkling wine, a champagne probably, and thought, ooh, I want to do this?
1: Uh, I don't know. Uh, It's... um... I don't know it's uh, it wasn't one moment uh, to be honest, but for me also as um, as a a sort of with the business background studies um, and my first uh, job was a wine buyer for a fairy line company. I was working with champagne a lot at the time, and I sort of liked uh, that how champagne is a little bit different wine it's it's at least fifty percent a luxury product and fifty percent uh, a wine and it's it's fascinating and I also think that it's a bit misunderstood wine that it's just considered like an easy celebration Drink you are not supposed to know so much about, but I think it's it's very um, very wrong, and there is a lot I can do for champagne.
0: It's interesting because sometimes that's encouraged by the champagne houses. They sort of say, "Oh, it's a mystery how we make the wine," you know, and they, sometimes they don't even tell you, wh- you know, what the percentage of grapes are in the, in the blend, which is crazy, yeah. isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's exactly how when I started, it was all about that that mystery. You are not supposed to ha- uh, know more details about they were sort of thinking that it's, it's going to take away the magic mm. if you know a little bit more but my my motto has always been that you know knowing a little bit more about something you know will enhance the mm. the pleasure rather than you know bring anxiety
0: no it, exactly i mean you, you started doing your wine exams wct and you passed very quickly you know you were a master of wine in 2006 by the time you were shouldn't say but you know only 31 um <laughs> What advice would you give to someone sitting the exam? I mean, especially to pass it as quickly as you did, so
1: young. Yeah, I, I decided that, you know, I find it, of course, it is, I think, tough for everyone. It requires a lot of work, no matter what you've done before. Um, and I felt like personally, uh, it was so painful that I wanted to do it, get over and done with it as, as quickly as possible. Um, and yes, the first year, I, I really uh, focused on the on the theory, which I passed and the tasting. I didn't do to so much for but then you you know once you've passed the 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 tasting um sorry the theory you can start to do the dissertation so i was still able to pass in that uh that um uh, minimum time
0: and then when you passed the tasting you won the top prize the bollinger the bollinger medal um, named after madame Bollinger. yeah, yeah. Um, just wondered, you know whether you think that great tasters are, are made or they're born was it something that you definitely had to work at?
1: No, no, I think it was definitely, they are, they are made. Uh, at least I think I'm totally made because, you know, when I started in Bordeaux, I realized uh, in, in 1997 that I hadn't used my sense of smell and taste to the extent I could have, you know, I was always, uh, you know, looking and listening rather than smelling and tasting. And I, I thought like I couldn't find all this aromas the others were finding. And that was one of my, you know, one of the first things I wanted to uh, be, uh, be good at and uh and then yeah i think it was a long um long uh, road but you know it's uh, it gets the easier the, the the more you do it the easier it is so no.
0: i i just is there a different technique for tasting sparkling wines i mean obviously you've got carbon dioxide in the wine do do you find you almost bring a, a, a different you know, way of analyzing the wine to sparkling wines
1: i don't think it's a different way of analyzing but i think that a lot of people think that uh, tasting sparkling wine is is very difficult compared to, to red wines and white wines because of the bubbles and also because of the high acidity. Personally, um, I find that, uh, that it's tougher to taste red wines with all that tannin and, and all that alcohol, and I feel like the tannins are accumulating in the mouth. But, um, but I think it's all about, you know, it's really, the wines are very um, delicate and nuanced. It's a very subtle, they're very subtle um, overall. And I find that, you know, it's also, um, I think it's a little bit. Um, I find that uh, the you know the people who normally taste uh, and, and judge red or white wines uh, maybe look for a little bit different things in, in sparkling wines that, for example, someone like me would.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I, mean, I, I find them quite hard to taste. I mean, partly because I'm not doing it a lot, um, in, and I taste a lot of red and white wines. Um, so I admire anybody, I mean, particularly as you said, because of the acidity. But I find that the this CO2 goes to my head. You know, I can't taste lots and lots, and lots of fucking wines. I'm going to say I'm drunk, but I get a little tipsy. I don't know. Is that a problem?
1: No, actually, I've never felt uh, that at all for me. I've, I felt that it's tougher with the more alcoholic, uh, you know, okay. red wines. I feel like there yes. is more that alcohol um, influence for me there. Yeah. I
0: mean, your MW dissertation was on single vineyard champagnes. And at the time, you called it somewhat provocatively of the antithesis of champagne. J- just tell us what you meant by that and, and how the situation's changed since you wrote the dissertation in what, 2006?
1: You know, at, at that time, it was uh, was a, a, a quite of, you know, a forward um topic because you know i i tried to look for as many single vineyard or single site champagnes as i could and there were probably 30 uh, plus of them um mm. on total and now there are hundreds and hundreds i can you know name over 500 of them today so the really the world of champagne has changed a lot so um, i guess it has become a little bit it has become a wine uh more linked directly to the terroir
0: yeah it's interesting. I was talking to John Bonnet recently, who's written his book. I don't know if you've read it, The New French Wine. And I said, "Which region surprised you most when you were researching it?" And he said, "Champagne." He said, "Because I thought of Champagne as just being blended wines and big Champagne houses doing this stuff." And he said, I suddenly found. He said it was like Burgundy, with all these amazing yeah. Yeah, single it's incredibly, wines.
1: incredibly complex, and it's incredibly dynamic. You know, there are so many new producers mushrooming all the time. The new generation coming, and and it's very, very exciting mm-hmm. moment for Champagne right now.
0: It's funny because that's not the image that people have of it. I don't think, I think people just think, "Hey, champagne." You know, it's it's Moet, it's Malm, it's Veuve Kiko, it's those sort of things. And I think that the average consumer has no idea what's going on there.
1: Yeah, that's that's very true. And of course, the big brands uh, still do uh, dominate the market uh, mm-hmm. a lot. But I know you, you know these revolutions have to start somewhere. And I think mm-hmm. this this focus to the terroir and the and the and the vineyards has really um, is doing champagne a lot of good.
0: T- t- tell us a little bit i mean you're such an expert on it but try and explain it to someone who's not an expert what makes champagne such a special place to grow to grow grapes tell us a little bit about the different subregions and maybe the styles they they make
1: well obviously it's uh, the the we've all heard a lot about the chalk in champagne but it is very important in that very very what used to be quite marginal climate is not so marginal anymore. But you know, there is still a lot of uh, rain in the era and that chalk really is integral in in sort of uh, uh, first getting all that uh, that um, water off, off the vines' feet, and then more and more now with the climate change, the 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 chalk uh, you, you know um, can give back a lot of water in the year in the in the very dry seasons. So it's actually very useful still in the changed um, climates. Um, and yes, well, we can debate about uh, how we can taste the soil's minerality in the wines, but I think... It really- you know, in Champagne, we definitely um, very well can. Uh, what's also fascinating is that all the different sub-regions of, uh, of Champagnes, there really are are different expressions um, uh, within those regions for all the three grape varieties that we're using. So that really, you know, makes Champagne a great terroir wine for me, even if we are used to more, you know, blended terroir wines from, from this region.
0: So what are the sub-regions? Just tell us.
1: Yes, so we have uh, the Montagne de Reims, which is the key um, Pinot Noir region where we have this sort of both uh, the the very cool northern facing uh, front and then the very warm south facing front. So we have two very, very different kinds of uh, sides of the same uh, hillside. And then we have the Valle de la Marne, which is a very, has very little chalk um, to it. So it's, it's more the, the river valley with, with different sandy uh, clay-based soils. And this uh, area is very good for Meunier predominantly, um, especially because it's, it's very tough for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir because the, the, of the threat of the frost in the spring. And then we have the Côte de Blanc, south from Épernay, which is the key um, uh, Chardonnay area, uh, where we are really on this this pure uh, slope, uh, east, uh, southeast facing uh, pure chalk uh, slope, where the where the um, chalk starts, you know, very quickly after a very. Um, uh, narrow, shallow um, topsoil. And then we have actually plenty of other uh, re- regions. Um, the Orb the Côte de Bar, down mm. south, uh, actually bordering Burgundy, mm. is very much up and coming at the moment. Uh, we have a lot of Pinot Noir grown there, which is a bit more fruit forward and lush style of Pinot Noir. And then there is also the great hillside of Mongueux, uh, a very old chalk um, terrain, um, which grows magnificent Chardonnay. And there are many others.
0: No, no and it's interesting, as you say, that with more and more these single vineyard wines, you can actually get to know the region better. Whereas in the past, you know, you'd say, well, there probably is a bit of Pinot Meunier from the Vallée de la Marne. There's a, some Pinot Noir from the Montagne de Reims, so and there's a bit of Chardonnay from the Côte de Blanc. But now it's easier to deep dive into the region, isn't it, and do that?
1: Exactly. And and all these messages can mean something to the consumer when they can taste what is the Chardonnay from Côte de Blanc and what is the Pinot Noir from the Montagne de Reims. So I find it very useful that we... We, we can learn um, about the terroir with these uh, single-site wines.
0: I mean, Champagne is made predominantly with just the three grapes, as we know, the Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier. I think others are allowed, aren't they, in the vineyards? But I'd just tell us about the main differences between those grapes, what, what, how you recognize them in, in the glass, especially.
1: What do they bring to a blend? Uh, yeah, well, what is of course intriguing is that uh, that uh, two thirds of champagnes grapes uh, have a dark skin, even if the white uh, the wine is white. What we make from them, so that that makes the usage quite of pinot noir and many are quite special. Um, Chardonnay is the only white variety, so it's the most, uh, the lightest, the most elegant, I'd say the most mineral of champagne varieties. It's uh, has very sort of spring-like, summer-like aromas, lots of, you know, lemony, um, yellow, green fruit. It's very lively, happy flavors. It uh, turns beautifully toasty over time. Uh, Then we have uh, Pinot Noir, which was the the historical great variety of Champagne, which still predominates in the vineyards. Um, And then there, there's much more body, there's much more volume, there is power, there is structure. Um, And... um, but the aromas you have, yes, you have red fruit, uh, you have a lot of spices, um, maybe some, you know, even uh, soubois or or mushroomy notes uh, when it ages, as well as biscuity tones. And Pinot Noir is the variety that is more easily prone to oxidation than Chardonnay. Mm. And then we have the, the the third one, Meunier, which is harder to put in a box um, because it sort of has been the workhorse variety of Champagne. And I think... People haven't maybe, you know, taken the most out of it yet because it's, um, you know, people want to get big yields out of it and it's the most difficult variety to grow in Champagne. It really needs a lot of uh, attention and um, and much smaller yields to, for it to express Itself. Uh, and we have, you know, there are lots of different meniers around. Some resemble more Chardonnay, some more Pinot Noir. But overall, it's a variety of great freshness, but there is this sort of instant fruitiness and, and good volume on the palate. So it's really nicely complements um, the structure of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir.
0: Tell us a little bit about, about what we call autolysis. I mean, it, you know, all the champagne method, as it's known, um, it requires bottle aging on lees in the bottle in which it's sold what what does autolysis bring to champagne and also just about time on cork as well after disgorgement um what that does
1: yes Yeah, it's really the, the, uh, one of the many secrets of, of champagne is the aging on the, on the yeast lease. As the, as, um, the, the fermentation comes to an end, uh, the yeast cells die and start to break down and react with the different, uh, components, uh, in the wine. And you have all these different, um, um, substances, aroma precursors, structural elements that are being born constantly. Um, the most active period of this autolysis would be over within four to five years, but basically it can go on for a really, really long time. So basically what it does, it contributes a lot to champagne's flavor um, and aromas. So if you think of the why Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Meunier are the champagne varieties, it's because they are neutral and we want the varieties to be neutral because uh, we want to give also um, space um, to the wonderful aromas uh, that we get via the autolysis. So all these toasty, biscuity, bready, nutty. Um, Anything nasus. that ends
0: in a, in a Y, right? Sorry? Anything that ends in a Y. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Um, and then, yes, texturally, also the wine changes that, it you know, it becomes uh, softer and creamier um, in the texture. So basically, um, this minimum aging period for champagne, 15 months, is very, very short for ge- for getting these autolysis effects. But that's why if you like them, then you look more into the vintage champagne category.
0: And what about time on, on cork? So after disgorgement and before the wine is released?
1: Yeah that's really a fascinating uh, topic and and very very poorly understood uh, because while the wine is still in contact with the with the yeast sediment it's in a very reductive environment and aging extremely slowly and the wine's uh, aging changes dramatically once the yeast sediment is removed so then it starts to age uh, like a normal white wine, the color starts to evolve, and then the aroma start to come out in a different way. So uh, you don't want to open your your um, sparkling or champagne uh, too quickly after disgorgement. Um, um, it's often, you know, best to drink them one year, two years uh, after the disgorgement to to sort of be able to enjoy all the all the aromas that the and um and textures the wine has to offer
0: so but will the wine go on aging in bottle once you bought it if you keep it in your cellar
1: uh yes absolutely but it ages in a in a totally um uh, different way than before uh, removing uh, the sediment i think in the old days the, the champagne houses also always said that champagne doesn't age uh which is totally wrong i think they just wanted us to open uh, the bottles very quickly Still more. <laughs> uh but it definitely is one of the if the cork holds and if you keep it in a, in a you know uh suitable temperature it's one of the most longest lived wine styles
0: Tell us a little bit about vintages. and just wonder whether they're they're changing with with climate change. Um, I mean, just how different, for example, were 18, 19, 20? Those would be the sort of vintages we're seeing on the marketplace now, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I I must say that... uh... Well, so far, then the the effect of climate change has has overall been positive for champagne. We have more, you know, more better years. We can now ripen basically the grapes every year. Um, but of course, you're right. the 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 style of the vintages is is changing, and we don't get any more these these sort of classic years. I think the last ones were were 2008, 13, and 14. So now we get much more of these warmer profile uh, years and this trilogy you know which is considered to be a good trilogy 18 19 and 20 mm. it has two of these um, these warmer profile years and then 19 is, is a cooler uh, profile year
0: we've talked a little bit about brands you know the, the big houses the grand Marc, um and they're you know very very famous and they sold lots and lots of wine but it's we're increasingly seeing these large number of what are known as growers champagnes so, yeah, i just wonder when did that movement take off and, and what do you think it's brought to the champagne region
1: well, I think that we could say that it really started, if, if one it need, needs to mention one person, I would definitely say Anselm Cellos. So basically, um, from the 80s, uh, really accelerating in the 90s. And of course, the whole of the, the, the 2000s have really been an era uh, of, of the boom for the grower producers. Of course, we must bear in mind that uh, it's still a very small uh, part of, of uh, Champagne's output. That's why they're not so well known yet. Uh, How big is it? very small actually if we think of you know these these growers what you and me are now talking about uh, so the ones that you know are exporting around the world and you know making exciting terroir focused uh, sustainably made wines we are talking about uh, maybe 150 more in practice actually 50 estates wines that hit, that have really have hit that marker marker of international um, fame.
0: And what percentage of the production of champagne would be grower champagne? Is, is there a figure up?
1: Well, it is. I mean, uh, if you think overall, well, the ha- champagne houses uh, produce approximately 90% of the, the, um, the production. And so that means that the 10% is left to the, uh, to the growers. Um, but this a, a big part of this, um, this output is actually sold, still sold in France. Hmm. So in exports, um, it's still tiny for the grower champagnes.
0: And, and any names we should look out for? Just give us half a dozen. I mean, you've mentioned Celos. Any, any other favorites? Because you get to taste all these are There
1: are, are so, so many good ones. I'd say one of the most hyped and, and one that I, I adore is, is Ulis Collan. but they are hmm. impossible to find. They are real, really... Um, um, Incredible success story, uh, which can be seen in the prices as well. Vilmart, I, I really adore the winemaking of Vilmart. But then we have these, all these new new guys coming up. I really like uh, Le Frère Mignon, for example, in the Côte de Blanc, who just quite recently started. Uh, Tom Goditia Bois, for example. Um, uh, Gaspard Brochet, uh, which is a big, uh, big hype name as well. So there is a, uh, lots and lots of them.
0: Lots of names for people to get to, to go out and find. Yeah. Uh, just tell us also about champagne styles. You know it's made in lots of different styles. I wonder if you personally have a preference, because I read you being a little bit critical of the kind of oxidative style, the the yeah. the powerful style. <laughs> just tell us what you like.
1: Yes, um, that's right. I'm not a fan of the oxidative style at all because to me, the oxidation, well, champagne to me, because of the production method, it is innately reductive, uh, but uh, also um, the oxidation, I'd say the premature oxidation, I'm not talking about the the, the noble oxidation that takes place over the course of uh, years. Mm. It's a different story, but um, to me, it acts like a veil on top of all the good things in in the wine, and mm. I don't find it um, an elegant, um, aroma at all. Uh, therefore some of the Pinot Noirs or Blanc de Noirs are more difficult for me if they're done in, in that sort of way. My personal taste is, is for very much for elegance, uh, for purity, for liveliness, lightness. Uh, it's easier for me often to appreciate, um, Chardonnay's. And I do love that toastiness they, they build over time. So, um, I don't like too oaky champagnes the oak must be very balanced or or barely noticeable often if uh, um, for me to the wine to be great and I do love this reductive toastiness what we can enjoy in some burgundies as well mm. it's really really something that I appreciate.
0: Uh, it was a very interesting article you sent me about um, organics and biodynamics and regenerative you know agriculture because uh, champagnes vineyards haven't always been particularly well tended that was a famous think time when a lot of Parisian rubbish went <laughs> literally went onto the vineyards, right? Um, and they're not—they weren't as well tender as those in Burgundy. But I get the impression that that's changing. Is that right?
1: It is changing very much uh, today. Luckily, uh, you're right that they were really quite uh, late uh, to to start to save and appreciate the the terroir, what they have. Um, um, it Champagne has approximately fifteen thousand growers, so of course it's going to take a lot of time to to get the message uh, aboard to everyone, but the CIVC is working, especially, you know, on a larger scale to get to everyone on a sort of certain level of sustainability and higher all the time. Uh, The big houses now are are doing a great job. Most of them are are turning all of their vineyards are now sustainable, um, some even organic. Um, and they really do um, support their their um, suppliers um, um, turning sustainable and organic as well. And of course, then we have those really famous uh, growers who have really been the, the sort of spokesperson uh, for for such uh, viticulture in Champagne.
0: So, so did it it began with the growers, did it? I mean, the growers' champagne movement really were were, were focused on their vineyards, right?
1: Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. It started started with the growers, with a few pioneers, and uh, and now it has has become uh, much much uh, more common.
0: I mean, you're not just a champagne expert, you're a sparkling wine expert, which means you get to taste all these wines from from all over the world. I mean, some better than others, I'm sure. But, I mean, Champagne is still considered the greatest sparkling wine region on earth. Who are its strongest competitors these days, do you think? Where do you see the best wines coming from that are Champagne?
1: Yeah, I mean there are lots of. Uh, for me, actually, there is not one region. Uh, for me, sparkling wine is a very specific wine, uh, and there's a lot of mastery in in the making and, and understanding what is the balance in the grapes um, that you are after. Therefore, to me, it's really certain uh, certain producers in many uh, regions that excel rather than uh, than complete uh, regions. I think you can easily, you know, uh, look into. Um, uh, It's often actually in many countries, it's the Champenois uh, who have taken the method to a different country, who still do the best sparkling wines um, there. And I I must admire, you know, when when, um, Shandon, so so subsidiary of Murti Shandon, went first to China and India some 10 years ago. And already from their first harvest, you know, in, in, in our competition, the World Championships, uh, criteria they were already getting silver metal quality from year one, which is quite extraordinary, so when you know what you 're after you can you can do do the style quite easily and there are some stars, a lot of stars now in Eastern Europe, for example, which is uh, great. but if you just look at the the, the climate, um, for example Trentino so the Trentodoc sparkling wise um, in the north of Italy. Um, like mountain bubbles, uh, they grow the grapes up to 800 meters today. And that really, you know, naturally, easily gives very good results. New Zealand is a wonderful place for sparkling wines, Um and then, of course, your, your native England, I think, has a lot of uh, potential. It's, of course, a tiny country um, um, for grape growing. But I think if, if we think how, how young the vines are, how young the business is, there hardly are any reserve wines around. And many of the producers can't keep the wines long enough in the cellar. I think the, the potential is great.
0: And South Africa?
1: South Africa, I think it's, it's one that I'm surprised how well they do because the climate certainly isn't, uh, isn't uh, the easiest for sparkling wine. And I think they've had their, their problems, the droughts and, and stuff um, lately. So it's, it's not easy, but there's a lot of passion for the Method Cup Classic there. So we can find, uh, find great, uh, great wines, but they are more in a softer profile.
0: Interesting. Most of these sparkling wines we talk about are made from two grapes, really Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. Although, as you pointed out, Meunier is is widely grown in Champagne. Which other grape varieties are capable of producing top quality sparkling wines? Do you think?
1: Well, I think, uh, as I mentioned, um, the the greatness about. Um Chardonnay and Pinot Noir is that they have that structure, that acidity that we we need, but then also have a certain neutrality. So when you have a lot of character in the, in the fruit itself, say Riesling or Grunewald, Liner, uh, then it starts to, uh, maybe, um, maybe there's too much fruit in them, uh, for this sort of reserved style, uh, um, uh, restrained style we are after for sparkling wines and wines that leave space for the, for the, um, uh, for the autolysis aromas to um, to surface, mm. so it's um, I it, I wouldn't. I I can't see a a contender at the moment that would okay. be better than Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. But uh, but yeah. of course we have some historical varieties that uh, that uh, are making a little comeback in Champagne, for example, and and some Pinot Blanc is being used. But uh, but also for Pinot Blanc, uh, I don't see see it have you know more positive characters than, because than were Pinot,
0: Pinot Noir and Chardonnay always the historic grapes in Champagne or you said there were other grapes presumably before Phylloxera the vineyards were very different uh,
1: yes there were plenty plenty of varieties uh, in the beginning but uh, but um, uh, Pinot Noir has been there uh, for a really long time and, and uh, has been the predominant variety for hundreds of years but Chardonnay actually only only came around uh, 1850 so it's still a relative newcomer in the area
0: okay interesting i mean you're quite outspoken about pricing in champagne you've mentioned some of these wines these growers champagnes in particular that are very hard to get hold of um where do we find value for money in champagne and sparkling wine in general i mean who's offering the best value for money
1: yeah it's it's an interesting question i mean um champagne has been quite i'd say wise in in their pricing uh, over the course of uh, the years because they've always it's been gradually the, uh, the prices have been growing and you haven't you don't n- usually didn't see such vintage differences as you would for for um uh, bordeaux for example for the speculation so it was very you know even even growth all the time mm-hmm. but now the recent uh, recent era uh, post covid especially the market has gone crazy because there were small sized harvests. And I think the Champenois were totally um, surprised by the, you know, people's uh, uh, willingness to consume champagne and buy champagne um, and collect champagne in the, in the COVID era. So the, it was some, you know, crazy, crazy price lifts. And also this, uh, this grower champagnes, um, the scarcity really has, mm. has has raised the prices to an unprecedented level.
0: Is it in danger of putting people off? Do you think those high prices?
1: Well, I think uh, you know, champagne only has that one uh, one um, a way to go, and it's it's the top quality. So I think that champagne must work on on um, on raising its prices, and but also, of course, the value. I mean. Uh, uh, there is still too much bad champagne around and and uh, that's that's my concern um, of course still today the greatest sparkling wines of the world are champagne but there is there is um, too much bas- bad stuff around which should be should be dealt with um, and uh, but I think you know if you compare uh, with uh, with the pricing of Bordeaux and pricing of of burgundy champagnes one could could even say that they are cheap
0: <laughs> it's a bargain I'm right? <laughs> I mean, just wonder looking ahead we've talked a little bit about climate change you said so far it's been quite beneficial for champagne do you think in 50 years time and we probably won't be here anymore but you know will will champagne be making more still wine than sparkling wine can you see Cote de Champenois uh, enjoying a boom
1: uh, yeah I think so I mean it it's it's starting it's still very difficult uh there are some great attempts but you know they really have to work hard on, today on 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 getting the still wines right but I think with this this pattern of of climate change we are seeing for sure it'll it'll um grow mm. uh I hope it will not uh you know the world doesn't get so warm that champagne doesn't isn't the suitable environment for sparkling wine anymore um but definitely i i think that some areas there will be more more dedicated for for still wine in the future
0: is anybody at the moment just doing coteau champenois
1: no i don't think so um it's they some new producers might start obviously releasing the Coteau champenois first but they're because making champagne takes longer time but it's really not uh, not um um very easy at the moment because yeah. the of the pricing it's tough to get the same price uh, for the still wines as you get for the champagnes yeah.
0: I just wonder if you ever wanted to make swiping wine yourself, and um, what's the closest you've come? I mean, you did—you know—you were a seller in Bordeaux. What about champagne?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I do like, and an every harvest, I want to pick some grapes and like to do a little bit of jobs in the cellar. I do, you know, like to get my hands dirty, and I love tasting base wines, and I love doing my little uh, trial blends and and things like that. But but it's of course tough uh, when you are uh, when you are a wine journalist uh, to to make a lot of wine wine yourself. Mm -hmm. um and i like do like you know um making dosage trials and uh, and things like that i've uh, i've done uh, this you know some dosage things myself a special cuvee for this ferry line company i work here in finland for so i do enjoy it a lot you know if i could choose now what what to do when i'm big i would definitely want to be a champagne maker yeah,
0: okay i mean i think that doing desage trials is much more fun than tasting van Clair. i find tasting van Clare really hard <laughs> then you're almost tasting lemon juice aren't you
1: yeah well, it is a bit painful for your teeth definitely but it's fascinating that's how you uh, learn the most
0: yeah i no, think you're right tell us a little bit about how you get away from wine i, I know you used to be a very good golfer are you still playing golf
1: no, no. I, I switched golf for horse riding because I had done it uh, for 15 years at the time. Um, but I do want to uh, get back to golf when I have a bit more more time on my hands. But um, but yeah, it's it's just basically sports, running, um, you know, things that don't take so much time as as golf or horse riding. And obviously, you know, I travel a lot, which I like a lot. But then when I'm at home, um, it's it's good to be home, and then also try to see my friends.
0: And your next trip is, guess where? Champagne, right? You said?
1: Champagne tomorrow morning.
0: Tomorrow morning. Yeah. So I'm about to get you in between two trips, right? Exactly. <laughs> and which is your latest book that people should be buying? Because, I mean, you've written how many, four, four five guides, haven't you, to Champagne?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, to champagne, probably something like that. Overall, I've written some some um, ten books about wine, um, but the, the latest is actually um, I'm wor- um, the the website that I'm working, which is it's for mainly for the for the um, for the tasting notes. Uh, the la- latest uh, book came out 2019, the Christie's uh, World Encyclopedia of Champagne and Sparkling Wine.
0: And, and your website is named after yourself, I presume. is it? Yes, Okay, so people can find it. Listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and knowledge because it really is incredible. We're very glad you decided to focus on champagne and not somewhere I'm an expert on, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tim. All right, see you, Essie.
0: See you. Essie really does know her stuff and she has an enviable talent for passing on that knowledge. Champagne is lucky to have her. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Christoph Hamel from the Falz region in Germany. Join me then for what promises to be a very entertaining conversation. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.